Take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter 41. Kids, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, kindergartners, you can make your way to the back and Brianna will take you to your classroom this morning. For the rest of us, Isaiah chapter 41. We're going to look at verses 21 through 29 this morning. Um, If you need a copy of God's Word, there are Bibles in front of you in the pews. Uh, and you'll find the sermon text in those Bibles on page 563. Isaiah chapter 41, beginning in verse 21, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 29. Isaiah the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to God's people, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things that they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on the rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and and beforehand that we might say, he is right? There was none who declared it. None who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. This last week, Elmo of Sesame Street fame took to Twitter and asked everyone how they were doing. Um, My Daily Digest of News pointed this out to me. I get an email that has a bunch of headlines in it, and there was a miscellaneous section in the email And the title of the article that was pushed to me was, People are letting Elmo know that the vibes aren't good right now after he asked everyone how they're doing. Of course, um, then the article included several notable responses. Uh, Here are some of them. Elmo, I'm going to be real, I'm at my limit. Elmo, each day the abyss we stare into grows a unique horror one that was previously unfathomable in nature, our inevitable doom, which once accelerated in years or months, now accelerates in hours, even minutes. Hmm. Another one said, resisting the urge to tell Elmo I'm kind of sad. Another one said, I'm just looking for someone to talk to and show me some love, if you know what I mean. Now, some of these responses to Elmo um, are a bit tongue-in-cheek. And of course, talking to Elmo on Twitter is largely an act for internet points or clout. Um, But there's some absurdity still to be highlighted here. (laughs) 
Um, guys, Elmo's not real. Um, that's the bottom line of what is happening here is that there is a big contingent of people talking to someone who's not real. Elmo, since he's not real, doesn't really care how you're doing. And whether he's furry, red, cute, referring to himself in the third person, manipulated by a Jim Henson-trained puppet master on a kid's TV show, or whether it's made of wood or metal or something made in our minds, sharing your thoughts and feelings with things that aren't real and expecting something in return is in fact delusional. It seems funny to say, um, and it seems obvious to say, and that's the point of this passage, that it is in fact delusional, and that's obvious. Last week, John preached out of the passage that comes before this, the first portion, it's a little more than half, the first 20 verses in Isaiah chapter 41. And the scene is set as a courtroom setting. God is contending with many people. He's contending with the nations and he's contending with his people Israel. And here when we get to our passage this morning, God now in this courtroom setting, you can tell because of just how he begins in verse 21, he says, set forth your case. God is now contending with idols. An idol is anything or anyone that takes the place of God. Anything in our lives that becomes an object of worship. And for people in ancient times, sometimes that represented something that was wood or metal that was crafted out of, by hands and then set up on a shelf. An image that they would, in fact, worship. Sometimes it was someone who they believed to be far off, a god. We'll talk about some of those in a little bit. Something that you wouldn't necessarily see or be able to touch, but something that existed out there to do something for you. In our culture, oftentimes, idols become material. They become things that we purchase, things that we decide are, are worthy of our worship. In this passage, God contends with idols. He contends with anything that threatens to take his place in the life of his people. And anything that has taken the place of him in the lives of people who are not his. God desires continually throughout these passages to reveal himself completely and fully to his people and then to the world. So, God calls the idols to set forth a case in this courtroom. Set forth your case, he said. And now this is the end of this scene. A scene that will culminate here at the end of the chapter and carry over a little bit into the next. But God is making his closing arguments in this courtroom. And what he's doing again, as he's done several times in these first two chapters that we've looked at in the book of Isaiah, He's appealing to common sense. He's appealing to rational thinking. He's calling his people to see things clearly. 
He's now removed obstacles, large things, mountains in the way, valleys that dip low. He's removed those things so that his people can see him clearly. He's showing himself to his people and he desires for them to worship him and him alone. Despite the difficulty of the circumstance that they find themselves in, remember that God's people here who were in Jerusalem have been carried off into exile into Babylon by the Babylonians. They have, in fact, gone after idols for a few centuries. And the discipline that God brings to his people is to allow them to be taken into a place that is not their home. He has allowed them to be carried off in order that they might acknowledge their sin and turn from it and turn back to him. But God doesn't administer the discipline and then stand off in the corner with his arms folded like a grumpy dad. Instead, he shows his people his loving kindness. He opens his arm to them and says, all that I am, all that I am, I am now showing to you, putting on display for you so that you might come back, that you might be received as a son is received from his father with an open arms. So this morning in this passage, two ideas are going to make up our time together as we consider God's closing arguments here in these verses. Two ideas. First, God questions the idols directly in verses 21 through 24. And then secondly, God submits what he's found as he's questioned different parties and contended with them in verses 25 through 29. So these two ideas, let's think about these two things together. So I hope you've kept your Bible open. Um, And uh, you're going to see here in verses 21 through 24, uh, God questioning these idols directly. Now again, sometimes in these passages here, uh, there's a lot of they's and them's uh, floating around. And so sometimes deciphering those things can be difficult. So what we're going to do here is we're going to look at this sort of walk through it a little bit verse by verse. I'm going to give you some ideas as a summary of what is contained here. But hopefully uh, some of the they's and them's uh, will will become clear who God is talking to and about. So here when he says, set forth your case, when God says, set forth your case, he is speaking directly to idols. He is speaking directly to the idols uh, that, that have been erected either by his people or by the Babylonians, by anyone who has put something in the place of God. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. So, as he questions the idols directly, God asks them to do two different things. The first thing that he asks them to do is to predict the future or to interpret the past. Two things that he asks them to do. Predict the future, interpret the past. In verse 22, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. That's the future. Tell us the former things, what they are. That's the past. That we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. That's the future. And to declare to us things to come. Again, the future. 23. 
Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. So God is saying that one of the criteria for these idols and their reality, their ability to do what they claim that they can do, is in order, it's to tell us, give us a proper understanding of what came before us in the past, and tell us what is going to, in fact, transpire in the future. In ancient pagan cultures, there are all kinds of practices for determining the future, for fortune-telling. You've heard an expression like, read the tea leaves. And that, that, that's designed to, to, to communicate or to tell what's going to happen in the future. Looking at a cup with some tea in it, some tea leaves. There's actually a name for it. Tasiography. It's a fortune-telling method. Considers the way that the leaves float around in the water, the coffee ground settle, or the wine sediment. That sort of practice seems to have originated in the Far East. But here in Babylon, in the Middle East, uh, where the Jews are in exile, the practices were a little bit more extreme, or at least from maybe from our perspective. Babylonians would offer cut off and cut open a sheep or some form of livestock, and then the pagan priest would be called upon to come and tell what the future would be based on the arrangement of the intestines of the animal. The pagan priest would appeal to the pagan god to show them through the innards of a sheep what was going to happen in the future. So when God tells the idols here to predict the future or to interpret the past, he's telling them to do something that that the people of this place that Israel finds themselves in are claiming that they can do. They're claiming that they can, in fact, tell the future, that their gods, that their idols can, in fact, tell them what is going to happen in the future. And so here, in this passage, the way that this is structured, God is saying to those idols, to those false gods, He is saying, make it happen, go ahead. I dare you. I dare you. Tell me what's going to happen. He dares them to embarrass him. He's giving them a chance to prove that they're able to deliver on what they promise. Now, it may seem absurd to us to uh, cut open some livestock and look at the intestines and decide what's going to happen tomorrow, or even to look in our teacup to figure out uh, what's going to happen. But we do this in similar ways. It's not a one-to-one. This is not usually the way that we take on our lives, but the reality is that we want to know the future as well. We don't ask the pagan priests to come over to do something for us according to our livestock's innards, but we want our financial advisor to pick the right investment plan and tell us how much money we're going to have at retirement. We want our doctors to tell us how our bodies and our minds are going to hold up a few decades based on medical science. We want parenting experts to give us the techniques that are going to yield the kind of people we want our children to be when they grow up. 
We want the internet to tell us when our Amazon package will arrive. We, wa we wanted the weather app to tell us if it's going to snow this week. We're kind of obsessed with the future. And we look all sorts of places, although we say they're based in science and they're, the data supports it and all of those kinds of things. We still, in fact, are looking for what the people here are looking for. And we're looking for it in a place that is outside of God. God challenges these fortune-telling sources. He challenges them to do the thing that they claim they can do. So God tells the idols to predict the future and interpret the past. And then... God invites the idols, after it's clear that they can't do that, to just show a sign of life. He tells them, in verse 23, halfway through, to do good or do harm. He's essentially saying, do something. Produce something. Now, this language is reminiscent of... a. Uh, a well-known story that comes to us in 1 Kings. So if you can, take your Bible and turn back to the book of 1 Kings, in chapter 18. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. 1 Kings, chapter 18. And we're going to look at the end of this, end of this passage. This is reminiscent. This is the... Story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Leading up to what we find in 1 Kings chapter 18, Israel had been splitting their time worshiping the God of Israel, Yahweh, and Baal. Baal was the name of the supreme pagan god worshipped by the peoples who inhabited the land that the Israelites came into during the conquest. If you read in the book of Joshua, Israel, God gives them the promised land. That's familiar language to us. And this land is, uh, in this land, the pagan peoples that inhabited it before God's people arrived worshipped Baal as their supreme deity. Or at least one of their supreme deities. The practice of Baal worship is then intermingled in Jewish religious life. If you go to the book of Joshua, then into Judges, you see that there becomes an intermingling that happens between the worship of the God of Israel and Baal. And then that worship becomes quite prevalent in Israel during the reign of Ahab, which is, who is king here, in 1 Kings 18. And so, Elijah, a prophet, is sent to King Ahab to confront this Baal worship. And Elijah invites everyone, and the people and the prophets of Baal, of whom there are 450 of them in Israel at this time, he invites them all to Mount Carmel for a showdown. Elijah posed a question there to the people of Israel. He said, how long, this is verse 21 if you're in chapter 18. 
He said, how long will you go limping between the two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Immediately following verse 21, or right at the end of verse 21, the people did not answer him a word. They said nothing. They sort of liked this arrangement that they had going, worshiping the God of Israel and worshiping Baal. Things seemed pretty good. They seemed to be doing just fine. Why would they abandon one in in favor of the other? Elijah communicates in verse 22 that he's the only prophet of the Lord left, and Baal's prophets are 450 men. Elijah tells the prophets of Baal, therefore, to prepare a sacrifice and let Baal light it on fire. And here's the, where things get interesting. Baal isn't real, and so nothing happens. Verse 26. And they took bulls that was give, were given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. The prophets of Baal grow concerned, and Elijah comes in with some well-placed trash talk. In verse 27, At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Baal is unavailable. He's thinking, well, maybe Baal went on vacation. Or he's asleep, or he's in the bathroom. And so the prophets of Baal get serious, the text tells us. They get louder and wilder. And in verse 28, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances. They wanted so desperately for Baal to pay them mind that they cut their own flesh and spilled their own blood until it gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. They call out to Baal to do something. But Baal does nothing. Because just like Elmo, Baal doesn't care what you're thinking or what you're feeling. You can scream and wail and bury your soul. You can dance around and even spill your own blood. But it doesn't make Baal capable of hearing or caring or Elmo capable of hearing or caring. But even as we've read so far in Isaiah chapter 40, where God says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In Isaiah 41.18 from last week's passage, To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? 1 Kings 18 goes on. Elijah prepares the altar. He has four full water jars pulled over the altar three times. It's completely soaked. And then in verses 36 through 38, 
And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came, the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Elijah appeals to the Lord for the purpose so that this people may know that you, O Lord, our God, and that it is you who have turned their hearts back. They were limping between two different opinions. God shows up and shows himself to be the one true God. Baal, a delusion. God, God. Friends, in the 21st century, after several centuries and millennia, after this event takes place, we are tempted because of the world around us to think this is a nice story. But we as believers, as those who follow Jesus Christ, who affirm that the word that sits in our laps this morning, that Bible that you have open in front of you, is in fact the very inspired word of God, we affirm together that this in fact is what happened. Clearly, historically, this is not a myth. God showed up and showed himself to be real to his people so that there would be no mistake that it wasn't their decision, but that he was the one who proved to him that he was God and he was God alone. Friends, this morning, I plead with you, see this God who is clearly outlined and shown to us in his word, that he is in fact God, that there is no other, that all other cheap substitutes that we go after are to be forsaken for the sake of following him. That is the point of this passage, and that is the point of our passage in Isaiah chapter 41 this morning. God invites Baal in 1 Kings 18 to show a sign of life. And here in Isaiah chapter 41, he invites the idols to show a sign of life. He says, say something or do something, but nothing is said and nothing is done. Friends, I appeal to you from the word of God. Even the best financial modeling can't predict how the markets will shake out. Even the best medical research can't predict the car accidents that pull people from this life far too soon. Perfectly healthy person snatched from this world decades early. Our tracking numbers outlive their usefulness when the package hits the porch. And God says to all that we rely on, and place our final trust in that isn't him. To all our idols, he says, behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. Now don't get me wrong, what I'm not saying is that you shouldn't prepare for retirement. What I'm not saying is that you shouldn't go to the doctor if you're ill. What I'm not saying is that you shouldn't track your Amazon packages. 
But what I am saying is that there is a pull there that exists for each and every one of us in our human hearts that draws us to a place where we believe that we are better or at least capable of living apart from God. And when we do that, we have put something before him and we have begun to worship idols. We must wrestle with this daily. I want to highlight this in this section before we move on this morning, verse 24. Verse 24, because we must wrestle with this deeply. Maybe cuts against the grain of our thinking a little bit. In the beginning of the verse, God says, Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. Again, addressing the idols, very simply stating it now, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. But then after the semicolon, an abomination is he who chooses you. Now that's some strong language. That's some strong language. He doesn't say that the one who chooses the idol is misguided. He doesn't say that the one who chooses the idol is a victim of poor information. He says the one who chooses the idol is an abomination. Why would he say that? An abomination, the definition of that, is someone who is morally degraded, one who has surrendered their own dignity. We must know what God has said to be true about us as people. In order to understand what he's saying here, we must know what God has said to be true about us as his people. And God has told us that we are, in fact, created in his image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This verse and this idea that resonates throughout Scripture is the basis for our dignity as people. This is the basis for our dignity. Each individual in this room bears the image of God and therefore has worth. We are created in God's image. That's what gives us worth. And we're created with a purpose. We're created for the purpose of worshiping God and for having relationship with Him. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. In another chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 43, God speaks of his people as, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. When God talks about creating us in his image for his glory, he's saying that we have worth because we have been granted and given his image and that we are created, in fact, for the purpose of worshiping him. So what God is saying in verse 24 is that when we go after idols, when we go after cheap substitutes, things that are that are, that are small and weak and cannot take his place, but we put them in his place anyways, We forfeit our dignity. We exchange the glory of God that is imaged in us for a worthless substitute. And we must understand that this cheapens us as people. Rejecting the God in whose image we were created defames his image in us because it defames him. 
Romans 1.25 says that those who go after idols exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God says that idolatry defames his image in us and therefore defames him. In a world that is seeking worth, the message must ring loud and clear here. Apart from God, you cannot find worth. You may think you can. It may seem as though you can. It may seem that people have rejected the God of the Bible and live a happy, fulfilled life. But if they've placed anything in the position of God in their lives, they've defamed His image in them and thereby defaming Him. You cannot find dignity in this life and reject the source of your dignity. It's a fool who dies of dehydration when all he needed to do was turn on the tap and have a drink. So God challenges the idols in verses 21 through 24 to do something or to say something. And then that brings us to this next section here in this text. And God submitting his findings. God begins in verse 25 by saying that he stirred one up from the north. We mentioned this last week. This one from the north. He comes from the east and from the north. He's Cyrus. Cyrus is the great king of Persia, someone who has not yet been named, but will in fact be named, although it is centuries before Cyrus will live. God clearly predicts what will happen in the life of his people here. As Hezekiah rules in Jerusalem, Isaiah predicts very clearly what will happen. And it is God who says these things. No one sees Cyrus coming. No one knows the name yet. And no one will see it coming in the future. The silly idols can't see it. No one can. God says, there is none who declared it. None who proclaimed. None who you heard, or none who heard your words. Sheep intestines, tea leaves couldn't predict Cyrus. Again, Cyrus would come from Persia and be the tool in the hand of God that would return, that would catalyze the return of God's people to Jerusalem, to their home. Through Cyrus, God would bring judgment upon Babylon, and the people, his people would be carried out of exile and find themselves home. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 23 or 22 and 23, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of his people, may the Lord... His, uh, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So Cyrus will come defeat Babylon. And then will, because God says it will, 
not because he decided in his own heart, but because God said it will, he will then send God's people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. Again, several centuries before these events happen, God predicts them through his prophet Isaiah. No one is able to say that he has counseled God in this way, God said. Persia was, when Isaiah wrote this, a blip on the map. People probably hadn't even heard of Persia. And when we get to chapter 44 in Isaiah, God reveals Cyrus' name. God predicts and orchestrates the whole thing. God calls Cyrus his shepherd who will fulfill his purpose. God's findings are this. When we look at this passage in verses 25 through 29 in Isaiah 41, God's findings are this. There is no viable alternative to him. They couldn't predict anything. They couldn't even open their mouths to speak, these pagan gods, these idols. They couldn't do a thing when God asked them to. God clearly and without error predicts the, the rise and the rule of Cyrus and the return of his people into their, into their home. There is no viable alternative to God. Idols are nothing. They do less than nothing. They are a delusion. They cannot do what they claim to do. World powers cannot resist his will. The great rulers of the earth are directed by him. They rise and they fall according to his design. God knows all the details and orchestrates all the details in all of creation. We say that he is sovereign over all. He is Lord of all. There is no thing that God is not Lord over. Nothing. Friends, the call of Scripture over and over again, the call of God's Word is to do not be afraid. Why can we not be afraid? Because God is Lord over all. Kings and presidents and emperors and governments and corporations and organizations and matter and molecule and atoms and planets and stars and galaxies and your thoughts and your emotions and your ideas. Material, immaterial, unidentified, uncategorized. He's Lord of everything. Friends, this morning you may be here and your life might be a total mess. You might be thinking to yourself, that's nice, but look at the mess I'm in. And when we find ourselves in circumstances that are less than ideal, and sometimes a long, long ways away from ideal, we're tempted in our unbelief to think, this has no bearing on what happens to me. This has no bearing on the things that I am going through as a person. But I want to point out how God reveals himself in this passage in particular. How God simply calls the men and women to whom he writes, to whom he loves, who are in exile in Babylon. He simply calls them to think rationally. To just think clearly. If I'm the God who does all of these things, he says, then why would you trust anything else? 
If idols can do nothing, if they can accomplish nothing, if their purposes cannot be, cannot be brought about, if it's all just guesses and games and moving tea leaves around in cups, why would you ever place any kind of final trust in those places? If I'm the God who called or fire came down from heaven and consumed the altar, proving Baal to be less than nothing, why would you choose the God who could not respond in any way, shape, or form? This is how God talks to his people. This is kindness. Clarify your thinking, he says. Look at, have reason. Reason that when there's nothing and there's something. The rational argument that God makes here is that there is nothing else that can help you outside of him. There's nothing else that can give you life. There's nothing else that can direct your days or give you the strength in the circumstances that you may find yourself in. The pursuit of idols is the rejection that God has done what he said he, he's done. And the rejection that God, or the rejection of the belief that God will do what he says he does. When we choose other things over God, we say he hasn't done what he said he's done in his word. When we choose idols, we say we don't believe that God will fulfill what he's promised to us for the future. You can't serve God in something else or anything else. He's Lord of all. Three simple thoughts in conclusion this morning as we consider this text. First, God is a God of clarity. One author that I read this week said it like this, idolatry flourishes in the fog of our own confusion. Again, friends, God calls us to reason. People who are opposed to Christianity oftentimes paint Christianity as the abandoning of reason, as if faith, as if trust in a God is somehow suspension of reason. In order to believe the God of the Bible, you need to suspend your reason, your faculties. This is not what God says. In fact, he says the exact opposite. This passage shows us that clear, rational thought is exactly what God wants us to do, invites us to do, and even dares us to do. When we pursue alternatives to God, it's because we are in a fog, not because we're thinking clearly. When you put your final trust in the stock market or medical technology and parenting strategies or in the weather app, you can be sure that you're confused. Those things are man-made and they change and they fail and you know it. You know it in your heart and you know it in your mind. These things can provide no lasting security or hope for you. We all know people who, who one day had a clean bill of health and the very next day we were mourning their death. We all know situations where we thought the week is going to be beautiful and we plan a vacation and then it rains. Friends, you and I are always looking to understand better the future. We're always looking to know what's coming. 
For the only place that we can place our final trust is in God. As the one who has made all things, the one who doesn't need to take counsel with anyone. We don't suspend reason for faith. We believe that God is who he claims to be. And since God is who he claims to be, we put our final trust in him. This is clear, rational thinking. The second concluding point is this. God cares for his people by exposing idolatry. This is one of the clear ways that God cares for his people. By exposing the substitutes. God goes after idols. He's protecting his people from what could prove to be devastating. He loves his people and he's jealous for their affection. As people, you and I, we have a clear desire to be seen. When we feel isolated, when we feel lonely, we want to be seen by someone. We want someone to acknowledge what's going on in our lives. Idols cannot see. Money doesn't know our grief. Our political party doesn't know our joy. Idols can't see. They can't tell if you're having a rough day. But God does. He sees what threatens you and he deals with it. And God knows that the best thing for you is to see him clearly. To know him truly. To have relationship with him fully. Not polluted by chasing other stupid gods that can't do a thing. That can't reply when questioned but to regard him as the greatest good that you could possibly have. The clarity with which God reveals himself to his people in these chapters in Isaiah is designed for his people to see the error in the pursuit of alternatives to him, their creator and their king. But friends, God is a loving father. And while he patiently waits for his children as they make errors and as they resist correction, when the discipline comes, it's accompanied with clear communication about how to move forward. God's people in exile in Babylon, because of their chasing after idols, the Father sits them down here in, the, in this passage when their decisions have left them broken, and He says to His people, comfort. He says to His people, I am your God. He says, those ones are a delusion. Do you see it now? He says, Look, I am for you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do not be afraid. Every single thing in all of creation is under my sovereign rule and control. God cares for his people by exposing their idolatry. The last concluding point this morning is this. That which secures our future is not better knowledge of the future, but Christ. Some people in recent times have theorized that what stands between us and knowing the future is simply more computing power. That more data collection and more better computers will advance the way we are able to predict the future. But knowing the future, just knowing the future, can't secure our future. Our hope and security for the future is Christ. 
It is Jesus who came into the world to be the once for all sacrifice for sin. And apart from him, there is no hope for our future. We can't have all the knowledge of what's coming. But if we could, we couldn't stop it. Jesus Christ came into the world and took the sin of the world upon himself, the very thing that we were incapable of dealing with. There is no way that you can deal with your own sin apart from the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can deal with our sin and ultimately death. We ran after other gods, after other idols and their stupidity. But God shows us his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Father welcomes us back with open arms. Despite your chasing after idols, the Father welcomes you back with open arms. He doesn't say that was the last straw, that was the final one. The Father welcomes us back through Jesus Christ every time. God deals with idols here in this passage in part. but On the cross of Christ, he dealt with them fully. The hold they have, the allure they possess, the confusion they create is undone by the sacrifice of Jesus. For those who are in Christ, we can clearly behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are freed from this slavery of idolatry. We're freed to turn from the delusional thinking that led us to them in the first place. Friends, because of Christ, we are free to behold our God. Let's pray.